0: You know it. You love it. You can't live without it. Rockland World Radio. Alright, hello and welcome to another edition of New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs. I'm a New York City school teacher, and I report on New York-based news and education news and sometimes national news, such as this week, uh, the real big story. Well, we have Puerto Rico, which is kind of education-related, and we'll talk about that. But first, the big dust-up between Donald Trump and the squad. The big national controversy over the last four, five, six days, uh, or definitely since we last spoke, has been Donald Trump calling out Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. The center of it, I guess, would be Ilhan Omar. Trump calls her anti-Semitic. I've never heard an anti-Semitic thing that she said. That whole controversy started up when she said that there are members of Congress that favor Israel inordinately over other countries, such as, oh, I don't know, Palestine or the Palestinian Territory, because they receive money from the pro-Israel lobbies. Now, that comment was taken in many circles to to be anti-Semitic. And they were referring to the World War II era trope that Jews... Do stuff for money. I mean, who doesn't do stuff for money? I mean, I don't know. It's you know, oh Jew. You know, whenever you mention Jews and money, it's a taboo. There's there's something wrong. Elon Omar probably wasn't even alive when that trope was being uh, bandied about. But to me, I don't know what the problem is. It's absolutely one hundred percent true that members of Congress serve their donors. They serve the wishes and the whims of their donors. It's called pay for play. Well, I'm not breaking any news here when it comes to Israel yes the republicans the democrats every presidential cycle there's an uh, apac an convention where all the candidates have to go kiss the ring of apac they're a very powerful and influential lobby some people have said apac doesn't actually contribute to congressional candidates or congressional uh, figures um but they do they do they do it they have a, a network of different Layers and APAC members have to prove their bona fides by donating to campaigns, and so APAC is directing money towards the US Congress members. You know, and uh, that's also controversial because you say, well, what's the difference between that and Russia interfering with our election? Anyway, long story short, Ilan Omar. Has been called anti Semitic. And, you know, there have been these kind of hair trigger Democrats. Chuck Schumer comes to mind, Elliot Engel, that tried to put her in this anti Semitic basket, even though the Republicans were doing it whole whole hog. You know, remember, the Republicans are trying to get the Israel lobby, the pro Israel lobby, to give them contributions. Why should they give contributions to Democrats? The pro-Israel lobby, will, you know, will probably give contributions to anybody that serves their interests, regardless of party, and they're happy to. To you know, spread it around to both parties, because that means it's a bipartisan issue. And we see that the solidarity with the right-wing government in Israel in the United States Congress is more solid than it is in the actual Israeli parliament. In other words, there are more American elected politicians that support Israel and their treatment of, you know, let's say the, the Palestinian issue than there are in Israel itself. You know they have a more healthy debate there in the Knesset than we have over here. So Ilan Omar, just for the fact that she is Muslim, uh, has become a lightning rod. And then you have Rashida Talib. Rashida Talib is the first Palestinian American, right? And she, uh, when she was inaugurated, brought the uh, flag. The Palestinian flag up and draped it over her shoulder just like you know Venezuelan you know heritage people have done that and just like everybody else has done that so you know I guess you're not allowed to do it if you're of Palestinian uh descent I am one quarter of Palestinian descent actually geographically and so you have them now Ayanna Presley was born here in America uh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born in the Bronx and same goes for uh Detroit, Michigan, that's where Rashida Tlaib was born. So, Ilan Omar was the only one that was born out of the country. She was born in Mogadishu, Somalia. And she came here when she was 11 years old, if I remember right, by way of a a refugee camp in Kenya that she she had to stay in, and her country was torn up by war. So, she was a refugee who came here seeking asylum, and... You know, went all the way up through high school, college, and became a, a U.S. congressperson. Trump has tweeted out, He st- it started with tweets, a series of tweets, where he said that these women need to go back to the countries that they came from, which are crime-infested and corrupt. And it's not clear whether Trump even understood that three of the four women were born here in the U.S., because he really looked dumb for saying, go back where you came from. But, you know, and they were born here, especially AOC, because she was born in the Bronx. You know, she was born in New York City, just like Trump himself. So it blew up. Uh, So Trump doubles down on Twitter, right? Tells these people, you know, love it or leave it. And then a day or two later, he's in North Carolina at one of his rallies. Now, the reason he had scheduled that rally is because that was supposed to be the day that Mueller testified in Congress and he wanted to take away the spotlight by having a rally that same day in North Carolina. But Mueller's uh, testimony, of course, was postponed until tomorrow. What happened in North Carolina is that Trump starts going off on these women. He calls them racist. He says they hate America. And the crowd starts chanting, Send them home, send them home, or send her home, or go back home. And that Blew up. Now Donald Trump was quiet about it. Um, They they measured it, they timed it, and he was quiet for about 15 seconds while the chanting went on and on and on. Then he started talking again. The very next day, the reporters asked him uh, when they were, you know, saying uh, send them back, send them home. Why didn't you do anything? And then he said to the reporter, "Well, I think I did something." He says that I started speaking immediately. And got them to stop. And that was a complete and total utter fabricated lie. They showed video of him during the rally. Side by side with him lying about it. And it, t- it took him 15 fifteen seconds. He just sat there while they all chanted. He, he seemed like he wasn't sure what to do actually. day later he realized that it was not a good look. Why? Because there are tons of black Republicans. There are tons of Hispanic Republicans, Republican immigrant Republicans, Republican, Mexican Republicans. There's Republicans from every country on this planet, many of whom were born in those other countries, moved here, or are the descendants of immigrants, and they know what it's like. They know that that's a racist chant. They know that this is a bad look. So Trump tried to kind of distance himself from the crowd a day after, he was called on the carpet for that. It was very clear he was lying. Everybody threw it back in any Republican's face that they could find. day or two after that, Mike Pence was on the Sunday show... And he started saying that it was also bad and that if it happens again, that they should prevent it, stop the crowd from doing that. It's disrespectful. There have been polls since this all happened in the last couple of days. And the polls show that Republicans, by and large, don't think it's racist to say, go back where you came from and that they stand behind Donald Trump. In fact, his popularity has actually gone up since this happened. So we are living in a very polarized country, and the polarization is racial, and it has kind of come to a head or a mini-head um, around this issue of go back home, of lover, you know, America, lover, leave it. Lindsey Graham was another person that was asked by reporters, "Do you agree with the sentiment that uh, these, you know, uh, congresswomen of color should go back to the countries, you know, that their descendants came from or that their grandparents came from?" Um, and Lindsey Graham said that uh, you know he 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 tried to say it wasn't racist. He tried to uh, downplay what Trump said, and he tried to say that "love or leave," you know, "love USA or leave USA" is an acceptable slogan. Folks, it's not. It's not. If you have any doubt, what that sounds like and what it feels like to a person of color, even if they were born here, they the first thing they say is is that it's racist, and it has led to calls for uh, more calls for impeachment. And it has actually led to a vote in the House. So there was a vote led by a House member, and what it was was a motion to uh, proceed with another motion to discuss whether or not they were going to start impeachment hearings. Um, the, guy, the, the House member's name is Al Green. The vote failed, but it got 95 Democrats to vote for it to move forward with impeachment. Including Nita Lowey, who is the congresswoman from the area that I am broadcasting from in Rockland County, New York. That was a flip for Nita Lowey, and the turnabout was ballyhooed online by her primary opponent, Mondaire Jones, who says, "You see, I'm a, my candidacy is already having effect." And effect. Ninety-five is more. You know, they only had, I think, about sixty votes the first time they whipped the vote, which means you know, counting up how many people would support it, and it's growing. They will need about double that. I mean, they will need almost all of the Democrats if they're going to pass a motion in the House to actually start impeachment hearings. So things are headed that way. And uh, here's some breaking news from the NAACP. This is from today, four hours ago, breaking the NAACP delegates unanimously pass a vote calling for the impeachment of the President Donald J. Trump at the NAACP convention. So that happened, and um uh, one by one, these uh, members of the House are going to be asked, "Do you support impeachment? If not, why not? Um, actually, some of the people that voted against impeachment said that they they wanted to do it in September when they come back from session from the break. Um, others uh, oppose it because you know they might live in a a purple district or a Republican district. Sometimes there are Democratic members of the House uh, elected in in Republican-leaning districts. That happens... So obviously they have a little. They're going to have a, a harder time. But if things are headed that way, as I said, tomorrow Mueller is going to be uh, testifying in front of uh, the Senate and then the House Judiciary Committees to answer questions about the Mueller report. One of the big questions they're going to ask is going to be, "Would you impeach the president?" Mueller has been instructed not to answer that question by William Barr, the Attorney General, who got hired by Trump because he promised to. <laughs> Basically, he theorized that the uh, you know Mueller investigation uh, could not find him guilty and that a president can't be guilty of obstruction and that the president has unitary authority and all of these uh, powers. So basically, the attorney general is not serving the American people, is just serving uh, Donald Trump, and uh, that's borne out by... Uh, AG Barr's orders to Mueller to not answer questions, uh, to don't answer any questions like that on hypotheticals. Uh, Mueller may or may not obey that uh, directive, but we'll obviously find out tomorrow. So, that happened. We mentioned Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, There's uh, there have been uh, sustained protests going on. This is what they sound like. Okay. This has been day after day. Uh, they, they've been counting the number of people in the streets. They say the number of people in the streets exceeds 100,000 in San Juan. I believe somebody said that that was more people than voted in the last election for governor. There was some strange statistic like that. So why are they doing all this? Well, the governor of Puerto Rico was found to be conducting an offline email chat with about 15 or 20 People, uh, some of whom were uh, his senior aides, and campaign officials, and and secretaries or ministers, or were under him, and also with lobbyists and associates in the media. What they were talking about was pretty nasty stuff. They were talking about women. They were they were misogynist comments. They were talking about critics of the governor getting shot in the head. She should be shot in the head. Um, They were talking about undermining. Critics And this is all not allowed. You know, you cannot be doing this kind of stuff, uh, especially on taxpayer time. But, um, you know, when it does come to light... So a lot of the um, aides have already resigned. But the governor is not resigning. And the people are out in the streets. This, this has been day after day. I think this has been about three, four days continually now. There was even a pop-up protest in Grand Central yesterday, where some Puerto Ricans uh, did a traditional dance or a ceremonial dance in solidarity. So how does this link to education, you ask? Well, after Hurricane Maria, the entire island um, of Puerto Rico started a privatization campaign. Um, They started closing down uh, public schools, or, you know, in the case of Hurricane Maria, just not reopening them. And then they started opening up more charter schools, and they also passed the law for a voucher program. So before that, they had no uh, such program, and they open and they voted uh, with a secretary of education by the name of Julia Kelleher, who was American. She was from Philadelphia. Voted to start charters, to expand charter schools, and expand vouchers, which are credits that a parent can use to uh, send their child to a religious school or a private school. Um, and and so there that kind of breaks the wall between church and state because taxpayer money is then at that point going to a religious institution. And you know we have the separation of church and state at the federal level around the states. Some states have it in their constitution uh, and some don't. And obviously uh, Puerto Rico started allowing vouchers after the terrible, terrible uh, hurricane. 3,000 people died, you know, so there was obviously ongoing health issues and um, public safety issues. The governor and his minions um, in that uh, chat, which which somebody in that chat leaked, so I hope that that person gets lenience, in that chat it showed that the governor and his minions were actually making fun of dead people and they were saying, like, horrible stuff about that that happened. We It's just a countdown to see when um, Governor Rossello, I think is how you say it, resigns. He was on Fox News last night, and he shaved off his beard, and he was all clean cut. He was talking to uh, Shep Smith, and uh, Shep Smith hammered him. They said, you know, why don't you resign? When are you going to resign? He didn't let the guy talk. The guy's excuse, Rosello's excuses were kind of lame you know, he was saying, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't say all of the comments, okay. <laughs> and he was also saying that, you know, he was sorry. I'm, you know, I apologized. Well, th- it's not enough. I mean, the people are really energized in Puerto Rico, and you know, hopefully this leads to something good. I hope that also that people realize that this has been going on for a long time in Puerto Rico, and that the the charter school billionaires have had their eye on Puerto Rico for a while. Which is why I reshared an article I wrote for Alternet in 2017 that spoke about that. The Hillary campaign back in 2014 was talking about just this subject. And of course, when the Russians hacked her emails and leaked everything online, we were able to see a lot of those discussions. And in Hillary's campaign, there was a a campaign official by the name of Ann O'Leary who was Hillary's senior education aide and senior economics aide going back to 2000 in her in her New York Senate years and at this point in 2014 she was tasked with um, conducting interviews from various billionaires to see what they wanted in terms of education reform, and she put those those asks those policy you know suggestions into a report called the 2014 Policy Book that was given to Hillary Clinton. And she spoke to Laurene Powell Jobs, who is Steve Jobs' widow, the largest shareholder in both Apple and Disney. Um, she spoke to Reed Hastings, who is the billionaire CEO of Netflix. And she spoke to a guy by the name of Bruce Reed, who was the CEO of the Broad Foundation. Eli Broad is a billionaire, that ha- a charter school billionaire, that has been giving money to Democrats and Republicans for a long time in order for them to expand charter schools. So in this policy book, Anne O'Leary writes to Hillary Clinton, here is what Bruce Reed spoke about on behalf of Eli Broad. Bruce Reed said that, he said, New Orleans is an amazing story. I'm paraphrasing now. When a, when a natural disaster strikes like that, and that there is political dysfunction, and there isn't really any uh, oversight by any central planning body, that it's a great opportunity to get a whole bunch of talent in there, and as we see, what happened in New Orleans is that uh, after uh, Hurricane Katrina, the entire city was converted into charter schools. So, Bruce Reed was celebrating that, and he was telling this to the Hillary campaign. Anne O'Leary was writing this up, and she presented it to Hillary Clinton. You know, it's a cautionary tale because, you know, nobody knew in 2014 that this was going to happen again in Puerto Rico. But lo and behold, it did. Not only did the privatizers swoop in, right? As I said before, Julia Kelleher, the Secretary of Education, passed a new law to expand charter schools and vouchers. But you also had the debt vultures swooping in. And so this would be the hedge fund managers and the the investors that purchased Puerto Rico debt at pennies on the dollar. And then uh, after the hurricane hit, put the screws on... The poor victims and the cash-strapped government who had absolutely no way of paying, them. they had a disaster on their hands, but thousands of people are dying. And that's when these uh, vulture investors, what I call them, started making offers. Oh, well, we'll forgive a substantial portion of the debt. All you have to do is turn over your power utilities to us. All you have to do is you know, put them into our name and then privatize them horrible stuff going on here, you know, taking advantage, exploiting disaster, and it's at the highest levels of the government. Dan Loeb was one of the Wall Street hedge fund managers that, that bought up Puerto Rico debt. Another guy was Seth Klarman, um, and then there was a few other guys. Uh, Julian Richardson, I believe. Paul Singer was definitely one of them. And the other funny thing is uh, that ties back to education is that Multiple of these Puerto Rico debt fund debt vulture guys w- served on the board of Success Academy charter schools in New York City, so it's the same exact people. So how about that? And you know, pretty pretty devastating stuff. Yeah, another story here. We have on July sixteenth. Yeah, there was an announcement that Mayor Pete Buttigieg was holding a fundraiser. It doesn't say where whose home it's at, but the hosts are going to be Laura Cornish, Carolyn Crawford-LeBay, and Reed Hastings, the very same CEO of Netflix, uh, pro-charter person that I just mentioned, um, announcing that earned Mayor Pete a downgrade... Uh, by the Network of Public Education as far as his associations because any presidential candidate that appears with Reed Hastings as a host of a fundraiser is considered to be in league with or in bed with or associated with the pro-charter billionaires. And so that brought him all the way down to an F on the subject of associations. Um, Also on the 16th, Attorney General William Barr made the final decision himself not to charge Pantaleo, the police officer that applied the chokehold to Eric Garner five years ago. And it's taken quite a long time for that case to wind its way through the grand jury and the courts and the whole system. But the final announcement was that there was going to be inaction by the NYPD, inaction by the district attorney's office, and the decision not to prosecute for murder or manslaughter or reckless endangerment or anything was made by William Barr himself. Obviously, that was an overture to uh, police officers. You know, we have your back even if you accidentally murder somebody or, or intentionally murder somebody, we have your back. To that, New York Attorney General Letitia James tweets, This inaction by the DOJ in the death of Eric Garner shows they've turned their back on seeking and serving justice. We all saw the same devastating video five years ago. Our eyes did not lie. We'll continue to fight to reform a criminal justice system that remains broken. And she got a lot of action on that tweet. When we were last here, Mary Ellen Elia was resigning and she had given notice that she was going to be serving uh, as Commissioner of Education in the state of New York up until the end of August. So there has been a lot of commentary ever since that happened. Part of it has been commentary by the yeshiva community, praising God for the fact that Elia stepped down. They saw Commissioner Mariel and Elia as, well, they didn't want her to regulate uh, yeshivas. they wanted free reign to run their religious schools in the way that they saw fit, which means currently without any academic instruction at all for boys in the, at the high school level. and at the middle school level, 90 minutes a day for secular instruction in the afternoon, only four days a week, and then of course it's canceled anytime there is a birthday or a bar mitzvah or something like that. When Marianne and Ilya stepped down, They cheered, and of course they're going to have to hope and pray that the next commissioner coming in also believes that yeshivas should have free reign to educate children or not educate children, even though they receive taxpayer dollars. I doubt that that's going to happen. I think the next commissioner coming in will probably enforce the law of substantial equivalence. The yeshivas have to provide academic education that is substantially equivalent to, to public schools, and they are not now. The argument is that the religious schools say that they should just not have to comply with the law and that they should be able to take taxpayer money and tax dollars and state funding for their schools without having any strings attached, even if it is codified in law for years. So you have kind of like a runaway uh, religious community here. This tweet is called Want Lies With That? The New York Post fabricates that the Board of Regents oppose outgoing commissioners' crackdown on law breaking yeshivas. They also lie about Betty Rosa being under the thumb of NICET or the UFT, which are the two teachers' unions from New York State and New York City. And they lie daily about the squad, which is why they are boycotted by so many bodegas. Okay, here, the New York Post put out an article that said the Board of Regents have been increasingly angry with Commissioner Elia's efforts to police politically connected yeshivas accused of not teaching and to combat the hysterical union-driven movement against high-stakes testing. That's completely wrong. It's just a lie. I don't know where they get that. They also talk about people being under the thumb of the teachers' unions, which is not so either. So, bad on the New York Post for lying. We are in the middle of the comment period, and people should go online and comment. And if you're listening to this, you want to write it down, I'll give you the URL. And this is whether you agree or disagree. So if you're listening to this, and you're the rabbi of a yeshiva, and you do not provide secular education to your students, and you want it to remain that way, you can also go to this link and leave your comment. But of course, here we feel that all students... Are entitled and have a right to a basic education, including learning how to speak English if you were born in New York, uh, including science so that you understand that the earth is not flat and the basics that you need to know about science that you breathe oxygen and that people bleed. I mean, it's simple stuff. You know, you, you shouldn't get a disease. Right, that people would uh, fill out the comment um, and submit it and uh, advocate for the children that are trapped in those schools. The URL, if you want to do that, is yafed.org regulations. And if you go to that webpage where you can leave your comment, and it has some samples there. In the fall, Supreme Court will contemplate backdoor vouchers. The next session of the Supreme Court starts in the fall. That's the window where they might start. What is a backdoor voucher Uh, while we're on the subject of religious schools? So, a backdoor voucher is a tax credit that is given to a donation made to a private school, such as a religious school. All right, let's say you went to a Catholic school and you want to donate to the Catholic school now that you're a successful businessman, and these are tax credits... So people are upset about this um, because of the uh, state constitution in states like New York, which say taxpayer dollars cannot go towards religious instruction, religious services, right? The establishment law in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no laws respecting any religion. The backdoor vouchers is a case where... Oh, actually, I'll bring this up so we can talk about it. Yeah, there was a case in Missouri, but this case is Montana. There is a case where some schools got some funding streams where you apply, and you can get funding from the state, and a religious school applied, and they were denied the funding because they are a religious school. This is the way it's it's been for a long time, and those laws in New York and other states are called the Blaine Amendments. So, uh, I mentioned Missouri. There was a 2017 ruling that sided with a Missouri church which opened the door to more taxpayer funds going to religious entities. In that 2017 case, the justices ruled that churches and other religious entities cannot be flatly denied public money even in states where constitutions explicitly ban such funding. Siding with a church that sued after being denied access to a state grant program that helps nonprofit groups buy rubber playground services made from recycled tires. The current case is actually an appeal uh, on the state court level made by three mothers of Christian private school students. The, and they're appealing a decision that was made by the Mo- Montana Supreme Court that struck down a program because it ran afoul of the constitutional ban on aid to religious institutions. Okay? It says, Churches and Christian groups have pushed for expanding access to public dollars for places of worship and religious schools, testing the limits of secularism in the United States. Much litigation over the years has involved school voucher programs and other subsidies to help parents pay for children to attend private religious schools in states whose constitutions explicitly ban such folding. Republican President Donald Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, is a prominent supporter of such school choice plans. And uh, actually, Andrew Cuomo here in New York also did. And uh, Cory Booker did, a senator in New Jersey now running for president, who teamed up with the DeVos family back when. Reading, The Montana dispute centers on a 2015 state law, providing a dollar-for-dollar tax credit of up to $150 for donations to groups that funds scholarships for private school tuition. State tax officials limited the program to non-religious schools in order to comport with the state constitution, which forbids aid of any church, sect, or denomination. Mothers of students who attend Stillwater Christian School in Kalispell in northwest Montana sued over the tax officials' rule. But last December, the Montana Supreme Court struck down the scholarship program itself because it could be used to pursue religious educational options. The parents appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing that the officials' attempt to exclude religious schools from the program violated their rights under the U.S. Constitution to free exercise of religion and equal protection under the law. So, this is interesting because they're saying that by the state not funding their tax credit impedes on their right to practice their religion. In other words, I can't practice my religion without you giving me money from the government. The equal protection. You can kind of see because they're giving money to everybody else except for the religious schools. And and that's what the Missouri case argued. So let's read on. Urging the justices to deny the case, Montana said there is no religious discrimination because the lower court invalidated a law that had subsidized both religious and non-religious education alike. In other words, Montana just threw out the whole program. The court will hear arguments in the case during its next term, which begins in October, with a ruling due before June 2020. The challengers to Montana's regulation may have a receptive audience in President Trump's appointee, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is now an integral part of the conservative majority on the nine-member Supreme Court. In March, the justices declined to review a lower court ruling that blocked a New Jersey county from giving historic preservation grants to churches. In a statement he issued at the time, Kavanaugh urged his fellow justices to take up a future case that raised similar issues. Quote, Barring religious organizations because they are religious from a general historic preservation grants program is pure discrimination against religion, Kavanaugh wrote. And then he popped open a beer. I actually just added that part myself. But really interesting, because this case creates... Bedfellows, right? It, it kind of uh, ties the fates of the ultra-orthodox yeshivas who are not complying with the substantial equivalence law with the fates of Catholic schools and uh, all kinds of religious schools, including uh, Muslim schools, madrasas, or even Hare Krishna schools, you could argue. I mean, everybody wants a slice of that pie. Education funding is a huge portion of state spending, and you know, federal spending as well. And um, wouldn't these schools all like to uh, get some of that funding? Uh, you know, there are so many people that disagree with uh, public education, want to homeschool or want to send their kids to some church school but they can't afford it because it costs thousands and thousands of dollars so this would be a way if they started opening up funding streams like backdoor vouchers or uh, grants or other funding programs like we just read about It could be a very, very interesting uh, debate between the religiosos in the country and the constitutionalists in the country who believe that the First Amendment is clear when it says that Congress shall not be funding religious institutions. We have a tweet here from July 19th. And it says, middle ground or shock doctrine? Education Journal considers pros and cons of charter schools without mentioning the major criticisms, student cherry picking, standardized testing, and the hidden agendas of pack billionaires, especially after natural disasters. This is a piece in the Education Journal called Phi Delta Kappen, and it was written by Joshua P. Starr. It's called Meeting Charter Schools in the Middle, and I read it And it's all about the charter school debate. I felt like it is pro-charter school because they left out the main criticisms against charter schools, is that they cherry pick students and they're based on standardized testing, which is an invalid measurement of learning, and that they're backed by charter school billionaires, right, and these political action committees. And I'm going to read the comment below. Well-reasoned, but perhaps some missing elements that the proposed NAACP moratorium on charter schools seeks to address. For students like Sruti, who is the uh, example mentioned in the essay, or her parents, no one can blame them for seeking a more preferable setting. But for civic planners and policymakers, we need to look at what's best for everybody when we allocate scarce resources, not how we create a few heartwarming anecdotes. I often use a bridge analogy – If a city has a broken-down, dangerous bridge serving 100,000 people per day, is the solution to divert money from the old bridge to build a shiny new bridge down the street which serves only 6,000 people per day? Now the old bridge is even worse off, losing traffic and splitting its funding. It seems like common sense that the city should simply have fixed the old bridge. That's the point. I can't understand anyone willing to give up on a troubled public school system to support a new competing system, but built only for some, and then claiming it's better, which is an admission of inequality. As a teacher from a school for high-need students in the South Bronx, I saw firsthand for years the problems in public schools and their causes, and I guarantee it has nothing to do with the PTA, the union, school boards, or special interest groups. That's who they were trying to blame the ability to fix the old schools in the essay on those groups, the PTA, the union, school boards, and special interest groups, which I guess they mean activist parents. The troubles plaguing low-income inner-city schools are not related to education policy. They are outside issues, brought into schools, and misdiagnosed by privatizers in order to diminish local control. At the heart of the conflict is the fact that charters were sold as a complement to public schools, but instead compete in a bait-and-switch. They compete for money, students, classroom space, and educators, setting up perverse incentives that have led to an epidemic of scandals including cheating, fraud, and pay-for-play corruption. And the competition for hearts and minds has given rise to astroturfing, smear campaigns, and dishonest comparisons based on the most controversial, highly disputed metric of all, standardized tests. Driven to outperform public schools, the charters from the start began the unfortunate practice of cherry-picking, enrolling the best test-takers in a community, even as they tout the fairness and randomness of lottery selection. They, in reality, used select marketing, targeted advertising, and intimidation, suspension, and counseling kids out to get rid of high-need kids who then end up more highly concentrated in public schools. Then, they insult the schools they just worsened plundered, and creamed, calling them failing schools from the rooftops. This is where it gets very public, very political, and it shows who has been behind it all from the start. The same billionaire packs that flood state capitals with campaign cash fund an entire industry of think tanks, news sites, and lobbying operations who then go on ad-buying sprees that misrepresent the statistics, make outrageously racist attacks, and denigrate public schools, students, and teachers. When I see articles in education journals report on the charter debate, they might talk about choice, outcomes, data, research, policy, or demographics, but always seem to leave out the involvement of billionaire ed reformers and the money they sink into politics, media, academia, and the revolving door. It's great this issue is rising to the fore, but I still see most pro-charter advocates talking past their greatest criticisms, refusing to disclose financial ties to the wealthy privatizers, and ponderously supporting standardized testing after 18 years of widening achievement gaps and segregation. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, somebody will uh, respond to that. You know, Now that charter school issue has become popular in presidential politics, more people are chiming in. That was an- another example. now this piece is pretty disturbing capital and maine california-based media organization they write about anne o'leary out in california who is Anne o'leary you ask the article is called miss o'leary's coup why a charter school bill lost its bite and it's talking here about the fight in california over charter schools remember the really big strikes that just happened, remember there was the L.A. teacher strike and then there was the Oakland teacher strike. I mean, it really pointed back to the charter school debate. There has been legislation in California to try to put some oversight back on charters and actually to uh, revert uh, control away from charter schools' authorizers back to uh, local stakeholders. The governor of California is Gavin Newsom, and Gavin Newsom ran against a guy named uh, Villa Rosa who was uh, formerly the mayor of Los Angeles and who was pro-charter and who was receiving a lot of money from charter school donors. Gavin Newsom won because uh, he, was, he was set up in contrast to Villa Rosa, and everybody thought that Gavin Newsom was going to be better on the charter school issue. Well, it turns out that he has just appointed recently Ann O'Leary, Anne O'Leary was Hillary, I mentioned her before, uh, she was Hillary Clinton's policy advisor for years, going back to 2000, and she was one of the diehard original supporters of No Child Left Behind, which made annual standardized tests the law of the land. It was, a, it was included in federal legislation called No Child Left Behind. She's pro-charter, she's pro-testing, she's pro-privatization. She was mentioned in those email leaks, she was running the Hillary campaign, she was writing that policy book I spoke about, she was interviewing billionaires and getting their preferences, writing them down, giving to Hillary Clinton, and at the same time was raising millions and millions of dollars for the Hillary campaign. In this article on Capital and Main uh, called Miss O'Leary's coup: Why a charter school bill lost its bite, they explained that Gavin Newsom put together a panel to investigate the charter school issue. On the panel, there was a faction of pro-charter advocates. Uh, it turns out the appointees um, had been uh, selected by Ann O'Leary, who is Gavin Newsom's new chief of staff, and they say that this was a coup for those people representing only 10% of California's enrollment only only 10% 10% of California students go to charter schools okay the bill casualties included a provision that would have totally eliminated the state education board's heavily used power to override local control by reversing charter petition denials right in other words they want to open up a charter school in your neighborhood your local school board denies it and then the that gets overridden by the state. Also gone was a complete rewrite of the Charter Act's onerous legal mandate that school boards must approve all petitions that satisfy state criteria. The California Teachers Association and other education groups remain in full support of the current bill. That would provide more oversight and accountability to charter schools. But the California Charter Schools Association is still fighting. So that's the CCSA versus the CTA. CTA is the teachers, and the CCSA is the charter schools. This uh, article uh, explains that Anna O'Leary is still doing her thing, um, still representing the wishes of huge billionaire donors and getting put in the position. I call it the catbird seat where she can have a difference. And it's awful. I mean, I don't know why people aren't protesting Governor Gamb- Gavin Newsom like they're protesting the governor of Puerto Rico for hiring in O'Leary. But, I mean, I guess people don't follow politics that closely. Um, so while we're on California, this was horrible. Total charter corruption. Okay, we tweeted this out on the 20th. Ugly Truth exposed in email exchanges proving the L.A. school board member, Nikki Melvoin, let the charter school lobbyists do his official work for him, finding ways to take over public school space after they funded Melvoin's campaign. And there is a journalist out on the West Coast named Michael Kolhas. They got this huge FOIA dump of documents from the from the state government and it is incredible and it shows that this school board member basically let the charter lobbyists come in and do his work for him they let him write the proposals write the drafts that became the law that was his job and it's all being exposed now so this guy looks like a real tool it's a a cautionary example of what can also happen here we have the board of regents instead of a school board but it's a similar problem And that brings us up to date. We're going to be back at our normal time, I presume, next Tuesday at 7 p.m. We want to thank Rockland World Radio for having us here into the studio. We will be back next week for New York Update. This is Jake Jacobs. See you next time.